Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist's Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney, and we're taking a look at some of the stories that are making headlines around the world this week. Kat, what have you got for us first? I have a very interesting story this week. Now, cancer is a disease that's caused by cells multiplying out of control, and it's been known by many names throughout history, some of them probably unrepeatable on air from people and families who've been affected by the disease. But one ancient name is the wound that does not heal. And today, researchers are uncovering many similarities between the controlled cell production required for wound healing and how this process is hijacked in cancer. And now new results from a Cancer Research UK-funded team led by Professor Alison Lloyd at University College London have found an important link between nerve repair and how tumours may actually spread within the nervous system. And they've just published their findings this week in the journal Cell. So take a little bit of a step back, first of all. How are nerves normally repaired? Well, our nerves are actually pretty good at repairing themselves, contrary to popular belief, although it doesn't always work in the case of severe damage or crushing, for example. Uh, but nerves can grow back through deep cuts, and it's possible to reattach amputated fingers, toes, and even limbs, and have some regrowth of the nerves there. And this is all down to special cells called Schwann cells. Which are what exactly? Well, Schwann cells act a bit like insulation nerves, a bit like sort of the plastic coating around electrical wires. And normally they help to speed up the nerve impulses, but we know that they're actually really important for directing nerve repair. Now, when a nerve is cut, the Schwann cells start growing out into that wound, and they start laying down guide tracks for the nerves to grow along. And here's where the new research from Professor Lloyd and her team comes in. They've uncovered some of the complex molecular signals that control this process. And what are those signals? What have they found? Well, the researchers were looking at exactly how these Schwann cells are controlled and directed into these guide tracks by fibroblasts. These are repair cells that gather at the site of a wound. And the team discovered that fibroblasts produce a little signal molecule called Efrin B, and that's received by receptor proteins on the surface of the Schwann cells called FB2. That's Efrin receptor B2. Now, it's this Efrin signalling that tells the Schwann cells to organise themselves into tracks, as directed by the fibroblasts, so that the nerves can regrow. So this is your cellular equivalent of the policeman who stands in the centre of the road waving his hands saying, you stop, you go and so on. Exactly, directing cars into different queues. And importantly, the scientists found that switching off this Efrin signalling meant that Schwann cells couldn't repair nerve damage and that shows that it's a really fundamental part of this process. So these findings tell us something really important about nerve repair and that's going to be useful for researchers who are working on techniques like nerve grafts, trying to repair damaged nerves after accidents or after surgery. Yeah, indeed, but you also said this was linked to cancer, so what's the cancer connection? Well, we do know that some types of cancer can spread along nerve cells. And in fact, the way they do this looks very similar to the way that Schwann cells and fibroblasts move when they're repairing damaged nerves. And it's very likely that this efferent signalling is also involved. And so Professor, uh, Professor Lloyd thinks that these cancer cells may be acting a bit like an unhealed wound. They're hijacking the same kind of signals that normally repair nerves. Now, in a normal situation, these regrowth signals would 
would be switched on when repair is needed and then switched off when the nerves have grown along the Schwanzel tracks and, and completed the wound. But in cancer, maybe it is that these signals don't get switched off, so cancer cells carry on spreading along the nerves rather than settling down and sort of healing. So understanding how this signalling goes wrong, how we can block it, it could prove to be an interesting lead for future treatments that stop cancer from spreading in the nervous system. Thank you, Kat. Very interesting. Now, also this week, sticking with the nervous system, uh, there's a very interesting story that's emerged from Germany which uh, pertains to multiple sclerosis, MS. Now, multiple sclerosis is a disease of the brain and central nervous system. It doesn't affect the peripheral nervous system, the thing that supplies your arms and legs, for example. And what happens in MS is that the nervous system is attacked by the immune system because a component of the myelin, this is the sheathing that wraps around nerve cells is directed out and singled out for attack by immune cells which go in and destroy that myelin and in the process they stop messages going along nerve cells properly and this causes a person to become disabled it can cause problems with vision it can cause problems with movements and it can also cause other issues to do with coordination balance hearing and so on so any bit of the nervous system can be involved and usually it's relentless so it may keep coming on and causing progressive damage which leaves a person more and more disabled well that's at least what we thought because what's becoming apparent is that, or at least according to this new bit of research, it's not just that myelin, that electrical insulating material, which is being singled out for attack. There's a paper in the journal Immunity this week by Volker Sifrin and his colleagues, and they're based at the Johannes Gutenberg University in Germany. And what they find is that, in a very clever way, it looks like the immune system is also attacking nerve cells. And why this is important is that if we're going to treat the symptoms and arrest the process of MS, we can't ignore damage to nerve cells, assuming that all the damage is happening to this myelin. The way they did this was they made genetically modified mice in which the mice have immune cells that make a red-coloured protein, originally from jellyfish, actually. So you can single out red cell, uh, the red cells as being immune cells, and the mice also make nerve cells, which are green. So any nerve cell in the mouse's body is going to have a green colour to it, and all the immune cells are going to have a red colour. And when they looked at these mice, which then go on to develop the rodent equivalent of multiple sclerosis, it's a rodent model of that, they were able to see what the cells are doing relative to each other. And they found and no one's seen this before, a certain population of white blood cells, which are called TH17 lymphocytes, they were snuggling up next to nerve cells and creating a connection to them called an immune synapse. And this is where the cells reach out and touch each other, almost like a handshake. And what was happening was that the immune cell appears to be damaging the nerve cell that it's contacting because the, the team were able to see that inside the nerve cell where this is happening, you get a big spike or a big flash of calcium going into the cell. And calcium is a very important signal in cells. It makes them more electrically active. And if too much calcium goes in, cells can become overstimulated stimulated and they go into a, a cascade called an excitotoxic cascade. The cells literally excite themselves to death. So it looks like in MS it's not just the immune system attacking this myelin sheath. The immune system is also attacking and triggering damage in nerve cells and if we understand the underpinnings of this damage it might be possible to arrest some of the damage done in MS to those nerve cells by giving drugs that can stop this calcium going in rather than just trying to stop the immune system attacking the myelin. Cat. So in, in epilepsy and diseases like that, the sort of the nerves are overexcited, is it possible that some anti-epileptic drugs might be useful? It's possible, yes. Um, and part of the reason is uh, that one of the ways in which cells get active is when things like calcium and sodium go into cells. And so drugs have been made which can block up the pathways that allow those chemicals 
sodium and calcium into nerve cells. And another interesting thing to look at is stroke, because in stroke, when the brain is deprived of oxygen for a short time, again, you get overstimulation of nerve cells, and there are now drugs being made which will block up a kind of receptor called an NMDA receptor, which allows these calcium uh, ions to go into cells. And so trying some of these drugs in the context of early MS could make a very big difference to the clinical outcome for people who unfortunately succumb to it. Oh, well, let's hope so. Well, I've got another story for you here, and I'm going to begin by asking you to predict what you might think goes on here, Kat. It's actually a thing called the thermal grill illusion, and it might actually hold the key, this piece of research, to understanding why people develop things like phantom limb pain if someone has an amputation, why the missing leg or arm they no longer have is nonetheless excruciatingly painful for the person that used to possess it. What you do with this illusion, if you imagine if you hold your right hand and you're looking at it palm forward if you were to take your index finger and put that in a little pot which had water at 43 degrees c and you then dangle your longest finger next to it into a pot which had water at 14 degrees c so cool water and then you had water uh, in another pot at 43 degrees into which you inserted your ring finger in other words the one on the other side of the longest finger what would you think you would feel if you were asked with the blindfold on what's happening to my finger what do you think would happen it's the same as the trick where you do when you're a kid where it makes you wet yourself. No, you don't wee, hopefully, <laughs> but you do experience something phenomenal. Uh, would, uh, would they all feel hot? Would the cold one feel hot as well? You're on the right lines. Actually, this illusion produces a sensation of excruciating pain in that middle longest finger, despite the fact it's in the cold water. It's slightly complicated why this happens. It's actually because of something called surround inhibition. So the warm receptors in the skin of the two flanking fingers, the ring and index fingers, they actually go into the spinal cord and those warm fibres suppress the nerve cells coming from the longest finger that normally say it's cold. And because cold sensations suppress pain sensations, if you suppress the cold, you're suppressing the thing that suppresses the pain, so the only thing left is pain, so you feel pain, even though you've not actually injured anything. But here's the amazing thing. If you do this to two hands, Patrick Haggard at University College London and his colleagues have found and published in Current Biology this week, you do this on both of your hands. If you then lift the hands when you're having the sensation out of the water, put the fingers together so that the index finger, the longest finger and the ring fingers touch pad to pad, What do you think happens to the pain? It goes away. It doesn't completely go away, but it drops by 60%, just suddenly disappears by 60%. And this is really bizarre. And get this, it's not just the fact that something is touching the skin, because if you do this on somebody else, it doesn't work. And if you do it on a hand, your other hand, but you haven't had your other hand having the same illusion, it doesn't work. So what on earth is going on? That's what they wondered. The only thing they can think is that there's a group of nerve cells in the brain in an area called S2, which is your sensory cortex. It's where the signals, uh, your brain basically converges all of the information about what's happening in your body. There's a group of cells there which seem to build up what's called a, a coherence map of the body. And it uses this coherence map to work out where everything is, what the body's map is, and what's happening to all the tissues. And if there's some distortion of that map, then the cells misbehave and you get these funny sensations. But when the body is able to re-establish that coherent map by bringing the two fingers together and you can compare one with the other, then it knows that this is an illusion and therefore it switches off the funny sensation. And what the researchers are saying is that actually understanding how this works could really inform our treatment of things like phantom limb pain because when this happens, you lose a body part, the body map doesn't know that that body part is missing and therefore signals which are originally 
thought to have been, been coming from that part of the body are then over-amplified in the nervous system and that part of the body is deemed to be excruciatingly painful even though it's no longer there and the symptoms eventually go away when the brain rewrites that map. So understanding how this map is established in the first place, perhaps using tools like this illusion, may actually help in the treatment of people who have nasty things like phantom limb pain. Great one. Well, let's hope it does work. Anyway, if you'd like to follow up on any of those stories, the details, the references and more are all on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. On to malaria now and a breakthrough in our understanding of where this parasitic blood infection, it's transmitted by mosquitoes, actually came from in the first place. Now, historically, scientists thought that the most severe form of this disease, known as falciparum malaria, first spread into humans from chimps. But now, by looking for the parasitic DNA in faecal samples, that's poo to you and me, uh, from thousands of wild apes, including chimpanzees, gorillas and bonobos, Edinburgh University's Paul Sharp and his colleagues have found that in fact it was gorillas that gave us malaria rather than chimps. He talked to our own Smita Mundasad through the work. Before we set out on, on this particular study there was one species of plasmodium known to infect chimpanzees. That's a species called plasmodium raikinawi which is quite closely related to plasmodium falciparum, the, the worst cause of malaria in humans. What we've subsequently found is that there are in fact six similar species of plasmodium and we found three species of plasmodium that only infect gorillas. When we compare those different species of ape plasmodium to the human species, all the evidence suggests that the human plasmodium has originated by a jump from gorillas to humans. What implications does that have now for our understanding of malaria? Well, the initial aspect of this, of course, is just that it satisfies our curiosity about where humans acquired their plasmodium parasite from in the first place. But ultimately, it can also prompt us or others to ask whether there are any differences between the strains that infect gorillas and infect humans. For example, it looks like only one of those six species has successfully jumped into humans, and it looks like it may have only done it on one occasion. These parasites are transmitted from ape to ape by mosquitoes, and we would expect those mosquitoes also to be biting humans who live in close proximity to the apes. And so we would expect there have been many opportunities for those plasmodium parasites to infect humans, but most of those occasions, they simply aren't successful. So it looks like the gorilla strain that did make it into humans must have undergone some kind of adaptation. It would be really interesting to find out what that was. Could these findings lead in some way to find treatments in the end? Any additional knowledge about what it is about these strains that allows them to infect humans or doesn't allow them to infect humans could lead to insights for therapies. Perhaps the most important implication of the work is that it says that there are these other species of parasites out there that might have the potential to infect humans in the future. And that would be particularly important if people were successful in curing humans of Plasmodium falciparum. There's the possibility that we're simply opening up the niche for one of these other ape parasites to jump into humans. Has this research thrown up any new questions? There are all sorts of questions that arise out of this. We never find one of the chimpanzee parasites in fecal samples from gorillas, 
and we never find one of the gorilla parasites in fecal samples from chimps. And so presumably there's something about whether these parasites can successfully infect blood samples of other species. Certainly intriguing to figure out what is that species specificity. And of course, that then leads into the question of whether that specificity could change so that any of those parasites could infect humans in the future. Do you have plans for further research? We do hope to look, first of all, at human samples to see whether any of these other ape species of plasmodium have made it into humans. We also want to look further at the ape samples because Plasmodium falciparum, although it is the most common form of Plasmodium causing malaria in humans, is only one of four or five different species of Plasmodium that, that infect humans. And so we haven't really looked extensively at these ape samples to see whether, any, whether the apes are infected by relatives of these other Plasmodium species that infect humans. That was Paul Sharp from Edinburgh University talking to Smita Mundasad. And that work appeared in the journal Nature this week. And there's also a longer version of that interview on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash specials. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.